and we are entering back into this event of Jesus' interaction at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. The story continues from uh, his previous interactions there. And we'll see what it means for there to be light to go into the darkness. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask, Lord, that you would send your spirit to illumine our hearts, our minds, our souls to the truth of your word, that we would be, um, that we would see you. And that we would see you as you are, and that in response that we would worship you and give you the praise and the worship that you are due. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. If you recall, we have been, uh, over the last couple weeks, looking at Jesus' interaction at the Feast of Booths, which was this one of the three great festivals that occurred in Israel. And it was a festival that signified uh, the deliverance of God from Egypt and also pointed forward to a new future when God would restore, um, when God would restore His people, and that He would bring His blessings through His people to the ends of the earth. The height of the ceremony was uh, the water ceremony that occurred, where where the high priest would go down and he'd scoop up a picture of water from the pool of Siloam, and then he would come back and he would have said Isaiah twelve twelve three with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And it was a picture of this day coming when God's Messiah would come and his spirit would flow to the ends of the earth. It was at this climactic moment that Jesus begins to escalate the tension with the religious leaders. It was at that point, at this climactic moment, when Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink, and springs or rivers of living water will flow from you. After that, there's another ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the lighting ceremony, where each night the temple would be lit, and there's these gigantic torches in the treasury, which was the big rectangle right there um, in front of the temple itself. And these torches would be lit, and they were a sign that reminding the people of God being a light for them when they were traveling through the wilderness. And that God would be the one who gives them truth and protection. And God is the one who gives them deliverance. And on the day when all the torches are extinguished, Jesus stands up before the crowd in the midst with these empty wicks standing behind him and these empty burned out torches. He cries out to the crowd, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The next day turned out to be the Sabbath day. And Jesus begins teaching in the temple and teaching in this region, and he escalates the conflict with the Pharisees and religious leaders even further. They were having a debate over fatherhood and who were the true children of Abraham, and Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And when he does that, he is using the Old Testament name for Yahweh, and Jesus is directly claiming for himself that the God of the Old Testament is him. As a response, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself hid, and he went out of the temple. He, and notice the last verse, Jesus himself hid, and he went out of the temple. Our passage today begins right at this point. What happens when the light of the world goes out into darkness? And the very first thing that happens is that Jesus encounters a man who has never known light. And he gives him sight, 
and he gives him light. Look at what happens beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, Jesus saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. It's me. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Salem and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had had formerly been blind. They begin to interrogate them. The conflict ensues, continues, and we're going to pick up in verse 24. So the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So what has happened here? What happens when the light of the world goes into the darkness? 
what happens is that the blind see and those who see are blind. The blind see and those who see, at least those who think they see, are blind or exposed for their blindness. We're going to take the second one first, that the seeing, that is those who think they see, are blind. See Jesus' point very clear in verse 39 and 41. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. He responds to the Pharisee, if they're blind, if you were blind, you wouldn't have any guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus exposes their blindness, exposes that they claim to see when they can't. And as far as this miracle, what the Pharisees have determined is that they are the ones who see clearly. And from their perspective, a blind man has not been healed by Jesus. It can't happen because they see clearly. A blind man has not been healed by Jesus. Why is he not healed? Well, because Jesus cannot be a healer because he's a Sabbath breaker. They had made a rule that you can't make mud on the Sabbath, and Jesus spit on the ground and made mud, so therefore he's a Sabbath breaker. And not only that, he's a blasphemer. He says false things about God in that he claims to be God. And so their assessment of Jesus is, we know that this man is a sinner. And if this man is a sinner, then either the blind man was healed by some other means, or he wasn't really healed. There's just a man who has now sight who was claiming that he was the blind man, but he's not really the blind man. So to figure this out, they go through three levels of interrogation with the blind man. The first one is that they say to this man, and this is the, the verses that we skipped, they say, how did this happen? And they say, he says, the man Jesus healed me. And they know that he did it on the Sabbath. And so they said, well, wait a second. It couldn't have healed you because people, he was breaking the Sabbath. But other people said, others of the Pharisees, wait a second. He can't be a sinner. No sinner can do what Jesus did. Therefore, this guy's not a sinner. So, they go to the next level of investigation. They call the guy's parents in. They say to his parents, is this your son? They say, yes, he was. Was he born blind? Yes, he was born blind. How was he healed? The parents knew the answer, but they didn't give it. It's that the darkness of the Pharisees had overtaken them. The text tells us that they, out of fear of the Pharisees and fear of the social consequences, they said, Ask him yourself. And so then they bring the blind man back for a third time where they interrogate him again and ask him more questions. What happens when Jesus exposes the spiritual blindness? What happens when he exposes spiritual blindness today? What happens is that those who are exposed to spiritually blind, it gets exposed that those who are spiritually blind are blind to the evidence. They're blind to the evidence. Here is this man standing before them saying, it's me, it's me, it's me, I can see. And they wouldn't believe him. And notice the interaction when they question him further. Is this guy a sinner or not? He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But look at the evidence. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Look at the evidence. And then they continue to challenge him. They reviled him in saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man who was formerly blind, his response is, come on, guys. 
Look at the evidence. Look at it. This is an amazing thing. You can hear him laughing. How could this be? You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? Like, do you not see what is so clearly seen by everyone else here that is watching this? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This man, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What is his point? He's saying, look, examine the evidence. But evidence was not the issue. Evidence was not the issue. They had the man. They had his testimony. They had the crowd, people saying this was the man. They had his parents. There are people rejoicing. The issue was that their blindness precluded the evidence. Their spiritual blindness blinded them from being able to see the evidence. Helen Keller, the first person who graduated from college being both blind and deaf, was not born deaf and blind. Uh, She became deaf and blind at the age about 19 months old, which many people think was from scarlet fever. Writing about her life, Helen Keller said, Gradually, I got used to the silence and darkness that surrounded me. And I forgot that it had ever been different. I got used to the silence and darkness. Forgot that it had ever been different. It was what was normal. It just simply was what is. We lived in St. Louis. Behind our church was an apartment complex that was a residential, it was apartments for those who were blind. And Many in our church would at times go volunteer and help them, and they were incredible people. It was a great privilege to serve them and to come alongside them. And one of the things that they asked for help with was, one, to sort their mail so that they would know what was a real bill versus what was a scam. Unfortunately, many of them were often scammed because of their disability. And the other thing that people would help do is that they would help them sort their clothes after they had done their laundry. And so they would pull a a piece of clean clothes out of the laundry basket, and they would say, this is a red shirt. And they would say, okay, here's the tag. I put the tag on it. And they said, okay, red shirts go on the left side of the closet. And so they would go in, and they would start to put it on the left side of the closet. And the person sometimes would say, no, no, no. I said the left side of the closet, not the center left, the left side of the closet. I mean, their ability, their spatial awareness to hear where the, the hanger was hitting the rack was incredible. To know that red shirts go on the left side and this person wasn't putting that shirt on the left side of the closet. It was amazing. Yet at the same time, they still never knew what red was. And they still couldn't see it. And they still didn't know if what the person was doing. They had to trust this person. And they had to trust that the person was saying that this actually was a red shirt and not a hot pink shirt or a brown shirt or a chartreuse shirt. They had to trust them. To do that, they, they still couldn't see, even though they had a remarkable ability to navigate in the darkness. For the Pharisees, all they had ever known was darkness. As Helen Keller said, you know, she got used to the darkness that surrounded her. The Pharisees have gotten used to the darkness that had surrounded them. They never knew that it could actually be different. 
And so because they were in the darkness, they never knew it could be different, couldn't conceive that it was actually different. And because they had become very adept at functioning in the darkness and had achieved a position of leadership in the darkness, they had convinced themselves that they see and that they see very clearly. I've met with a number of, quite a lot of non-Christians, and when we begin to discuss and to talk about who Jesus is, Many people think, many people who are not Christians when they begin to investigate Christianity, oftentimes begin by thinking that the evidence of Christianity is the issue. Is there evidence or is it not? Is the Bible reliable? Is it not? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is it not? And they think that evidence is the issue. And I'm happy to discuss those things. But very quickly, I make it clear that evidence is rarely the issue about whether or not a a person puts their faith in Jesus. Yes, a lack of evidence can weaken a person's faith. But overwhelming evidence does not compel faith, faith. Overwhelming evidence does not force faith. It cannot generate faith, faith. Why? Well, look at the Pharisees. They had overwhelming evidence in front of them with this person who had this miracle something that they themselves couldn't deny. But they couldn't see it. Because if they were blind, because of their blindness, they can't see the evidence. And it precludes them from seeing the evidence. And the same thing is true today, is that if people are opposed to Christianity, evidence is not the issue. And the evidence that is there, most often they cannot see. And I say this not judgmentally. I say it it compassionately is that people do not see it. Similarly, I have also met with a lot of Christians. Christians who will reject the plain words of Scripture. Plain words of Scripture. Let me read you what this passage says. And the response is, I know what the Bible says. You don't need to tell me. Okay. Well, then you know that the Bible says this. I know what the Bible says. The evidence is not the issue. Because they claim that they can see clearly, even when they do not. At the least, this passage should give us a huge caution to say that we see clearly on almost anything. Scripture says we see dimly when you're enlightened by Christ. But so So what happens with the spiritual blindness? Is that the seeing are blind to the evidence of who Jesus is, but the seeing... But the seeing, those who claim they can see, are also blind to the beauty of grace. To the beauty of grace. Notice their conclusions in this passage. Well, one, Jesus is a sinner. And number two, this blind man, he's a sinner. Jesus is a sinner. And they answer the blind man, you were born in utter sin. What are they saying? Is that the way that they view the way that God works is really the same way that every other religion in the world has viewed the way that God works. Is that they look at this and they say, well, what happens is that Good people get in and go to heaven, and bad people perish. We reap what we sow. People get what they deserve. What goes around comes around. You know, karma, fill in the blank. Karma will get you. And that's the basis that we operate on. Indeed, it's the world that most of us live, that you there are rewards and consequences based upon your performance. But in terms of relationship with God... 
That doesn't even make sense in terms of basic life. When you look around this world, there are many good people who are in terrible situations, and there are awful people who have lives of ease. I mean, that is just common observation. But what Christianity does, and the grace of God, what Christianity does, is that Christianity comes in and it upends the religions of the world. It upends the way that our own heart works. Because Christianity comes in and says, you know what, every other religion says that, that, the, that, that the good people get salvation and the bad people perish. And Christianity says, no, it's the bad people who get in. It's the blind. It is the weak. It is the needy. It is those who realize that they cannot have a relationship with God in their own. Salvation is for those who are bad. And sometimes people look at Christianity and say, they say, well, how can Christianity be exclusive? And Christianity is saying, it's for anybody who believes, not just for those who follow up a certain path. It's for anybody who turns, turns to Jesus and trusts in him and believes in him. But until the light of God, until the light of the Son of God illumines your heart, it's darkness. For Helen Keller and the spiritual version and the Pharisees, they got used to it. So much so that it surrounded them. It was all that they had ever known. Couldn't imagine that it was different. And those who are blind, those who claim that they can see but are blind, they can't see that grace does not operate on the, on the basis of rewards and punishments. They cannot see that grace does not operate on the basis of performance. But when you are in darkness, that is all that you see. And that is what you see of Christianity, even though it's not the case. Pastor Kent Hughes warns us, warns Christians, about our claim to seeing clearly. He says to Christians, the self-satisfied attitude of we see is deadly. We comfort ourselves in our ability to see the sin of the world. We see that Jesus Christ is the answer. We see moral problems. We see the ethical answers. We focus on what we think we see, but never really see into our hearts. It is so easy to focus on our piety, that's our religious practices, or the changes in our habits and speech, but while we congratulate ourselves, we allow evil to spread unrestricted in our souls. And when light comes, those who claim to be seeing are exposed to be blind, exposed as blind. Blind to the evidence of Jesus, blind to the beauty of grace. But the other thing that happens when Jesus comes is that those who are blind see. Those who are blind, see. Look at what happens with this man. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. And he kept saying, I am the man. I am the man. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, notice that he says, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam was the pool where the water was drawn from at the Feast of Tabernacles. And so it must have been a little bit of an odd thing for this man with this mud on his eyes to make his way through the town to get down to the Pool of Siloam. And if you remember, it was Jesus who said, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink, and rivers of living water will flow from you. And we saw how when Jesus is making this claim, he's pulling upon the biblical promises. And Jesus is saying, 
I am the living water. I am your deliverance. I am your forgiveness. I am your future. I am the one who gives you life and salvation. You, blind man, go wash in the pool of Siloam and come to know the living water. Helen Keller's experience was, she said, Gradually I got used to the silence and darkness that surrounded me and forgot that it had ever been different until she came, my teacher, who set my spirit free. Who set my spirit free. Is that darkness was all that this man had ever known. He could not conceive of blue or green or red or the orange. He could not see the, the beauty of the shimmering of a glorious sunrise or the colors of spring flowers bursting forth from, forth from trees. He would have known his mother's voice, maybe the softness of her face. Maybe he would have known her touch, but he did not know what she looked like until he met Jesus and received his sight. And when he received his sight, he not only was able to see physically, but he was also able to experience the beauty of grace. Because you see, for this blind man, he knew well that everyone believed that the reason why he was blind was because of some sin in his life. When the, when the Pharisees said to him, you were born in utter sin, this was not new information. He had been told his, his whole life. But here Jesus comes to him and gives him his sight to one who is completely undeserving, who recognizes his blindness, who sees his need and recognizes that he cannot heal himself. And here's what happens, is that when the light of the world comes, the blind see because of Jesus, and they see that they need Jesus to continue to see. C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters, this story of an older demon coaching a younger demon on how to tempt Christians in this kind of backwards um, storyline. And at the beginning of the book, C.S. Lewis writes an introduction. He says, some have paid me an undeserved, excuse me, some have paid me an undeserved compliment by supposing that my letters were the ripe fruit of many years' study in moral and ascetic theology. They forgot that there is an equally reliable though less credible, way of learning how temptation works. My heart, I need no other. My heart shows me the wickedness of the ungodly. Is that the blind see that they need Jesus to continue to see. Alexander White, a great preacher from over a century ago, was in his study one day. He was in a study one day when a friend came in to tell him about an evangelist who had come through their town in Scotland and who was criticizing the local pastors. The man told Dr. White that the evangelist, the preacher, had said that Dr. Hood Wilson was not a Christian. When White heard that, he leapt up out of his chair and he said, That rascal, he's saying that Dr. Wilson is not a converted man? Then his friend said, and that is not all. He said that you are not converted either. And at that, Dr. White stopped short. 
He sat back down in his chair and he put his face in his hands. And after a long silence, he said, leave me, friend. Leave me, friend. I must examine my heart. Is that the blind see that they, can, they need Jesus to continue to see. We must continue to see our need of Jesus each and every day to see clearly. Another thing that happens when the blind see, those who are blind who now see. One, they see that they need Jesus to continue to see. They also see a new purpose in suffering. Look what happens in verses 1 through 3. He passed by and he saw a blind man from birth at the beginning of this passage. His disciples, who had been experiencing the grace of God but were still operating on this basis of rewards and punishment, said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus responded, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Who sinned? The disciples' perspective. It must be somebody's fault because good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And Jesus' response, neither his parents nor him. Jesus is acknowledging that there is brokenness in this world and that he is the one who gives hope to that. And he also, in this statement, is identifying that the reason why we are here is so that our lives, in its strength and in its weakness, in its health and in its suffering, that our lives would reflect and display the glory of God and proclaim that Jesus is the one who heals and who gives sight. Speaking with the credibility of a quadriplegic, Joni Erickson Tata states this. She says, every Christian wonders, exactly why did God create me? Well, God created you for one purpose— And that is to showcase his glory. He wants you to enjoy it, to display it, and to demonstrate it. Every day to all of those that you encounter. Nearly 50 years of living as a quadriplegic and dealing with chronic pain on a daily basis has taught me how to make Jesus look good in the toughest of situations. Wheelchairs and cancers and pain can't stop you from living life to the fullest. Don't ever think that your life is too ordinary, your world too small, or your work too insignificant. All of it is a stage set for you to glorify God. See what happens? Is that those who receive sight through Jesus Christ, those who are blind, See that they need Jesus to continue to see, but the blind see purpose for suffering and purpose for living. And like the blind man, what does that mean? It means that you don't have to be an expert about Christianity. You don't have to know the answer to every question that would-be Pharisees throw at you. You just have to be a witness to his grace in your life. The final thing that is revealed about what Christ does and those who are blind is that those who are blind see Jesus as he really is. And they give him the worship that he is due. Notice the progression of the blind man's response to his relationship with Jesus. When Jesus first heals him, he's asked, who is the man who healed you? Who healed you? How did this happen? And the blind man's response was, the man, Jesus, he told me to put mud on my eyes and go wash and now I can see. And then when he's interrogated by the Pharisees, 
They ask him, well, who do you say that he is? And the blind man said, well, well he's a prophet because he couldn't do these things if he weren't, if he weren't, if he weren't a prophet of God. He must, be, he must be a prophet. And then when he is interrogated further, the, he says to the, to, the, to the Pharisees, do you want to become his disciples too? Implying that he now is one of his disciples. And the Pharisees say to him, you are one of his disciples. We're disciples of Moses. And then when they press him further, they say, he says, clearly this man is from God. Look at, the, look at the evidence. And they throw him out of the temple. And then Jesus comes to him, and Jesus says to him, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? His progression has gone from he's just a man to he's a prophet to he's a prophet of whom I'm a follower of. He's a prophet who is from God. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? That would be an Old Testament reference to the coming Messiah. And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. As we've gone through John, we've seen the text identify people as believers in Jesus who prove themselves not to be believers in Jesus. We've seen the text identify people as disciples of Jesus who have proved themselves to not be disciples of Jesus. Here is a key reason in the difference between those who are believers and those who are true believers, between those who are disciples and those who are true disciples. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Belief plus worship, submitting to the lordship and the godship of Jesus Christ. It is unimaginable, inconceivable, that a Jewish man standing outside of the foot of the temple would worship a man. Unimaginable that he would worship a man. That would be complete and utter blasphemy unless he actually was God. And you see his progression from acknowledging him to be a man, acknowledging him to be a prophet, acknowledging him to be from God, to acknowledging that he is God himself. And if Jesus is God himself, then he is worth, then he should be ascribed the highest allegiance, the highest praise, and the utmost worship. It was most, what was most needed from him, and it's also what is most needed from us. To not only believe in Jesus, but to devote ourselves into the worship of him, because he is not just a man, but he is the man who is fully God, the creator of the universe, the one to whom we owe our life and our allegiance and all of who we are. But our biggest obstacle to seeing Jesus and to worshiping Jesus It's not the evidence, it's not the beauty of grace, but it's actually ourselves. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said, It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, it is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. What happens when the light of the world enters into the darkness? The blind see and the seeing are exposed as blind. It is a call for us 
to profess our blindness, to continue to seek Jesus as the one who enables us to see and to fall down and to worship him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we worship you because you are fully man and fully God. You are the light of the world. You are the living water. You are the one that gives sight to the blind. And Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to open our eyes, that we would see and see you clearly. And that in seeing you clearly, that we would not only believe, but that we would believe and worship you and ascribe to you the worth and honor that you are due. And that we would give our lives and lay down our lives in devotion to you because you are the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is in your son's name we pray. Amen. As we sing, you may want to sit there and just talk with the Lord. That's okay. You may want to stand and sing with us. That's okay. But talk to the Lord Jesus. Respond to him. Hear what he has to say. Come to the end of yourself.
Thank you. 
give you peace at all times and in every way. May the Lord be with you all. Amen. Arise, arise, arise. 